Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My latest book, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls, is out now. A huge thank you to all of the listeners who have supported it. My lovely local, the Margate Bookshop, has signed copies in stock and they deliver nationwide. Now it looks like summer events and festivals are going ahead. Hooray! Coming soon, I will be in conversation with Caleb Azuma Nelson at the Bath Book Festival on Friday, May the 21st. Tickets are available online. I hope I'll see you there. Now, on to today's guest. Charlie Hickson is a prolific novelist known for his Young Bond and Enemy series for younger readers. We're here to celebrate his latest book, Worst Holiday Ever. The funny story of 12-year-old warrior Stan, what happens when he goes on a doomed trip to Italy and learns some lessons about courage. Charlie talked about Samuel Beckett, Sellafords, science, fact and fiction, and he was very tolerant of my fast show fangirling. So I'd like to start by asking whether the way you read and what you wanted to read changed at all over a year of perhaps spending more time at home than usual. And if there are any habits you want to keep and habits you want to change reading wise. Well, I think my experiences from talking to other people are quite common and you've probably come across this a lot, is that at the start of lockdown last year, everybody had this sort of fantasy that they'd be reading huge books and learning to speak Chinese and um, taking up macrame. But actually people did absolutely nothing because there was a sort of, we were all sort of of slightly polaxed. There was that sort of underlying feeling of anxiety and uncertainty. And people couldn't concentrate on on reading. And I know a lot of people went back to sort of comfort books, books they'd read before, books they'd perhaps read even in childhood, as a sort of way of, um, well, comfort. That's exactly why they're called comfort books. And yes, I, I, I was the same to start with, couldn't really concentrate on things you know, fiddle around online, do bits and pieces. And, and, I, and I found it also it was the same in terms of writing. And that a lot of writers have said that it was the same thing when it came to writing. They just couldn't concentrate on anything, anything big. And I think perhaps it was partly because nobody really knew what was going to happen, what the world was going to be like. And if you're a writer who wants to kind of be true to the world and what's going on around you, and you're thinking, well, I'm starting this book out but now, 
it might be out next year or probably two years time and I want it to feel modern and relevant will we still be wearing masks will social distancing still be in place will covid be a big deal or is it something that not much happens so nobody knew what the world was going to be like so I think it was found it hard to to write about that it's fine if you're writing fantasy or science fiction or something you can have have fun with it so yeah to start with we're just sort of in a slight daze but then as the year went on and particularly as we hit the summer I started to feel I wanted to get on and do things I started to read a lot more I started to write a lot more I started a new book I've got more work than I can handle at the moment so so things picked up and what I actually what I've started doing is hang on I don't know if my headphones will reach yeah a couple of years ago because people are always asking you you know in interviews and things oh what did you read last year can you recommend anything and as soon as you're asked that question you completely forget everything everything you've ever read let alone last year so I started doing this thing of as I finished a book I would write it down I don't think I'm the first person to do this and I started it a couple of years ago and I seem to average about 30 to 35 books a year. Yeah. I mean, did you find, how did you find that, that, that early period of, of lockdown in terms of reading and writing? I think that's so interesting what you were saying about the record keeping and that, you know, on average, it was like, oh, it's actually, you get to the end of the year and you sort of take stock and it, you know, ends up being about the same. I think I, as you say, the comfort reads, that was really what I reached for. And I think if ever I got sent any proof where someone, it's a dystopia. I'm like, no, 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 we are living in a dystopia. <laughs> I don't want to read about it. And I think, you know, this is something that lots of guests have said. There's a real craving for books about the Second World War. The Cazalet Chronicles came up a lot. And that was yes. a series of books that had been recommended to me and I kept meaning to get around to. And then... I was delighted by them. And that first one as well, what I loved so much about it was war hasn't started yet. It's any minute now. It's all of that uncertainty mm -hmm. and they're on the brink and they just don't know what they've got to expect. And that felt sort of comforting, but also it was a world I could recognise because all the time I was thinking, well, we know the Second World War ended <laughs> and that's quite good to know. <laughs> So what were your, were there any comfort reads, books you reread, or even books that you just thought about reading and you thought, if things get really dreadful, I've got that in my arsenal? Well, I didn't, I didn't go back and reread any old books. I, I, I don't really do that a lot. You, you know, I read interviews with writers and things and say, every year I reread Middlemarch. And I think I couldn't even get through it once, <laughs> let alone, why would you reread re it every year? I mean, you know, as I say, I've worked out, I've got about 30 to 35 books a year. So, you know, if I've got another 20 years, you can kind of work out how many books you're going to read. And you kind of think, well, I'm not going to take that up by rereading books I've already read. Um, but, I mean, I do occasionally. So, but no, I mean, I, my reading patterns didn't particularly change. I mean, I tend to read a mixture of, I read a lot of crime. I read quite a lot of historical fiction, things like Bernard Cornwall, anything with some battles and fighting in it. <laughs> not the Second World War particularly. Although um, it's quite funny because on social media, you know, there's all these sort of um, gammon types banging on about, um, you know, what about the Blitz spirit? This is this, this little thing and everyone's panicking. And then you find out that actually more people were killed last year from COVID as died in the entirety of the Blitz during the Second World War in the, in the UK. So, 
going to say that what I do love about these sort of um, the more you know I think the home front is what I go for rather than the fighting but people talk <laughs> about blitz spirit and actually no people were sort of craven and selfish and manipulative and you know bought things on the black market and would do anything to yeah. wiggle out of you know what was allowed and what was okay <laughs> yeah human nature is human nature and there's all these people saying we know we're all going to be changed unutterably by what's happened and all our habits can change that well we just revert to how we've always been yeah, no, I've looked back and, you know, I read quite a lot of stuff I have to read for work, whether it's to review something or people send me books they want a blurb or if it's a subject I'm researching or um, I get sent quite a lot of books for people saying, you know, could could this be made into a film or TV? And then I read quite a lot of um Non-fiction, quite a lot of sort of science science and history I'll read quite a lot of. I'm sure you've been asked about this before and you've talked about this before, but I'd love to know when you first met James Bond as a reader and what that <laughs> felt like. I came to the books quite late. The films I grew up with, the first film I, I, I actually remember going to see in the cinema. I'd probably seen films before, but the one that I, you know, I can remember sort of going to the cinema with the family, sitting down to watch, was um, Thunderball in the early 60s uh, and and then growing up as a, as a boy in the 60s, you know, James Bond was the biggest thing in the world and you go into the cinema, I meant going to see a new James Bond film and it was really exciting. I didn't get around to reading the books. I was quite a snobbish reader when I was a teenager. I, I would seek out books which were deemed to be long and difficult and read them. Uh, and, and I steered clear of sort of popular fiction and popular genres. Um, until a, a, I was at university, actually, and a friend of mine, Alan Davidson, said, you know, there's actually there really is a lot of good crime books out there. I mean, I'd read things like Dasha Hammett and Raymond Chandler, but, you know, he opened my eyes to that great world of, of, of pulp fiction, American pulp fiction, and, and good English fiction, crime fiction. And I, I sort of worked my way through everything. And eventually I thought, because I was such a big James Bond fan, I thought, well, you know, I really ought to actually read read one of the books and I started it was probably uh, I was in my late 20s I, I think I had the, the the sort of reaction that a lot of people reading the books now find is that they're they're incredibly readable still Fleming was an amazing writer about uh, of, of action which is which is surprisingly hard to write it's a bit like sex uh, writing about sex is quite hard to write because there's only so many things you can do and only so many ways you can describe it and if you try and get too poetical it all gets a bit silly how do you describe a scene where someone's punching someone or, or shooting them but but Ian Fleming was very good at that he was great at writing action and he was great at writing about things he was on slightly more dodgy ground writing about people and and ca characters and why and and relationships um he he strayed quite a lot and more into sort well the books were fantasy on every level but yeah the books are still incredibly readable there's quite a lot in them which is which is very much of its time, which on one level is absolutely fascinating. And on another, there's a sort of quite a sharp intake of breath. Oh dear, you can't say that. <laughs> Some age better than others. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, but they're, and they're daft. They're, they're really, really silly. And, and that really has been a big part of the enduring appeal at what made them so big, so successful, because he said that he basically had the mind of an adolescent boy. And that's how he wrote the book. And so he didn't have that sort of grown-up writer thing and thinking, actually, this is a bit far-fetched. I, I, I shouldn't write this. Or that would never happen. He thought, no, wouldn't it be amazing if this happened? We'll have Bond having a fight with a giant 
squid whilst trying to climb over a fence. Um, and he put all that stuff in and you and, and it is daft, but it's what makes the books so so rich and strange. And it fed completely into the into the films and created that whole new genre of the sort of big international outrageous crime film. So 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 there are so many levels you can read those books on still, and so much you can look at um what they say about being being a man in the in the 1950s. I mean, what I tried to do in my young non-books was to show how an ordinary boy, what he would go through that might make him turn out and grow up to be essentially an assassin, a killer for hire, which is what James Bond is. And so, yes, my Bond does start with a lot more, a broader personality and, and set of problems and worries. And, you know, he's a 13 year old boy and he's brutalized really. And that actually is at the core of what Fleming is writing about in Bond is that Bond himself understands that he is, he's not like other people. He, he has been brutalized and he's become this, this thing and he just has a mission and he goes and does it. And, and that is what he does. Um, and there's a great simplicity in reading about that. And to find the nuance, you have to dig quite deep, although it, it is implied. I, I don't think you would uh, read James Bond to understand about emotions and the best way to have a relationship <laughs> with someone. I love that you started as a younger reader seeking out these difficult books. I'm making um, quotes my fingers there for the <laughs> listeners. Um, and then finding um, James Bond in your late 20s and that, you know, giddy camp propulsive action. But I'd love to know a little more about the first book that you enjoyed and felt proud of enjoying the first book that you thought gosh this is enormous and challenging and this looks like quite an impressive <laughs> thing to read but actually actually it's quite good back then they hadn't invented computers and the internet and you had a lot more time to fill so you could quite happily read all these giant books as a kid because there was, there was nothing else to do you know there were three tv channels and not much on for a kid so so reading was 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 one of my huge pleasures and and so the books didn't really feel that difficult at the time and you know I read Don Quixote and Moby Dick and the novels of Samuel Beckett now they're quite uh, <laughs> they're quite they're probably the most extreme that I got into they you know in, in one of his books I can't remember which one it was he spends about 20 pages I think describing a man transferring a pebble from one trouser pocket into the other and back again well, you know what Beckett's like. And, and I find, you know, as a kid, I, I was kind of mesmerized and I was drawn into this. And I liked the absurdity of it. And I liked the the madness of reading a book where absolutely nothing happened. And, and I've always been quite interested in sort of uh, people's disrupted thinking processes. That sounds as like something that might have an enormous impact on a future writer and perhaps scholar of comedy that... You know, that's oh, what's totally, funny, yes. isn't it? Those that well, which it is, is absurd, what we can focus our attention on. Yes, and that's the thing that, you know, people don't always big up enough with Beckett. Is this essentially their comedies, you know, the very idea of two people on stage sitting in dustbins for the entirety <laughs> of the play. It's a funny idea. Um, and, you know, his whole thing was taking a joke just as far and far as he could take it. So it had gone way beyond being a joke. And Waiting for Godot is, is a classic musical double act so so yeah there's there is huge comedy in that and you know I, and i think actually for for 
in terms of what I did later and writing comedy and things. I think all of the stuff that, that you read and you absorb when you're young is, is important. And it's important to, to, to get as wide a variety of, of, of input into your brain as possible. And, and this stuff, you know, pops out later. We actually did on the fast show, we did, uh, we did a Samuel Beckett parody. Well, we did a parody of Crap's Last Tape. Paul Whitehouse did the, the, the kind of the musical characters sort of cross between Arthur Askey and Max Miller. Um, Arthur Atkinson, Arthur, where's me, wash, where's me washboard Atkinson, which was a sort of comment on, well, it was a comment slightly on the far show and on, on how strange that's going to look to future generations. But that idea where comedy, well, in fact, it's a Beckettian idea where comedy is, is, is repeated so often it's reduced to its, its barest essentials. And it happened very much, you know, in the war with the program, it's that man again, Itmar which was on every week and it had these regular characters and they would do their catchphrases. And when it started, there were stories and the characters were built up by the end. It literally was people coming in and out shouting these catchphrases. And, and if you come to it late and listen to it now, you think, well, what earth is going on here? This is insanity. Um, and Steve Martin, he, 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 he wrote a very good book about, about his life and performing comedy and why he stopped doing stand up because he he was massive he was doing these huge stadiums he was the first sort of big rock and roll act and and he said that his his act had, had become reduced to doing right i now do the bit where i put the arrow through my head bang now i do this catchphrase now i do that now i say this and he said it was just like pressing these buttons and he knew that he he wouldn't have to put any work and he just had to do or say these things and you'd get this pavlovian response for the whole audience would suddenly scream with laughter. And he said it lost all meaning to him. He didn't know what he was doing. He was going mad and he stopped it. So that's sort of slightly, yeah, all those things feed into each other. And then that's what Beckett was doing, was, was, was extending everything to absurdity. And so we had, um, this is a very long anecdote, Paul Whitehouse's Arthur Atkinson character. Uh, and like a lot of those musical guys in, in the 70s, they did start to do things like theatre and and interesting TV. People like Max Wall, and so we had Arthur, the aging Arthur Atkinson doing um, a version of. Uh, we did a parody of Crap's Last Tape. Yes, so so yes, every, so sorry, <laughs> so yes, everything everything feeds into you know you feed everything into your brain in the hope that some of it will squeeze out in a useful way later on. <laughs> I always thought that miserable Alf uh, falling into his hole and predicting a sword spell had a real sort of Beckettian quality. <laughs> totally. He says, uh, it's total Beckett, isn't it? Now you mention it is, look, see that hole over there? Knowing my luck, I'm going to fall in that. And he does. He does a very long walk. And when he gets to the end, as a viewer, you're thinking, well, what's the twist going to be? But no, he simply falls in the hole. Uh, and it goes on slightly too long. Mm. We, we kind of, we, we, we measured it and worked out what we thought was the optimum time. Just to, so the people, as he's walking, they're thinking, okay, where's he going? Is he, is he gonna, yes, he's gonna get to the hole. You said anything else gonna happen? So you, you want all those thought processes to be going on. And uh, yes, yes, the fast show all goes back to Samuel Beckett. <laughs> that's, um, I think that's hardly an exclusive, but it's good to know. Are you... <laughs> You mentioned Steve Martin's book, and I'd love to hear about any other memoirs that you've read or memoirs by figures that you'd like to read, lives that have fascinated you or surprised you. Well, I got absolutely fascinated by and, Im and immersed in Michael Palin's diaries. 
um, I, I, I didn't read them when they first came out. I started on them a couple of years ago. As a kid, for me, Monty Python was my TV show. It's always as kids growing up, you have your comedy. Less so now when it's all become so diverse and so many different ways of consuming uh, comedy. But then, you know, you had the sort of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore generation and then the Monty Python generation. And then have I got, why can I never remember the name of it? Nell Smith, Griffiths, Jones. Not the nine o'clock news. Not the nine o'clock news. I knew there was news in it somewhere. (laughs) Not the nine o'clock news. And then you know, Blackadder and then I guess in the 90s, Fast Show was there for people, but also, goodness gracious me and and um, League of Gentlemen and everything. But anyway, so yeah, so for me, it was Monty Python. So I'd always been, I'd always loved Monty Python and I'd met Michael Palin a couple of times and he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a really good guy. Um, and, it was, and it was fantastic to meet one of your heroes and, and not be disappointed, but be the opposite of disappointed. What is the opposite of disappointed? Appointed. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very appointed to meet him. And I was in, I started reading it because I was interested in Monty Python. And, and you know, the first book starts just, he started keeping his diary, I think, just before he started making Monty Python. And the interesting thing is that, that soon after he started making Monty Python, he stopped writing his diary because he was too busy. And he, and he, says, in, he says in the notes, you know, all these classic sketches, like the parrot sketch, I didn't keep a diary at the time <laughs> because he didn't know at the time if it was if it was going to be big, if it was just going to be another sketch show that because he'd done a couple before that would come and go. But you know, they have really big, thick, immersive diaries, and you know, I just read them back to back. And you know, it starts with his kids very, very young being born, I think, and they grow up. And you know, by the end, they they they're grown ups with kids and grandkids and things and you follow this life through and I, I, I love the I love the technical detail of all the various projects he was working on you know I love the fact that he, he was um, lived in London and there's a lot of sort of the history of London and how London was changing over the years and um, just following a career through uh, so so yeah I, I've been I, I've been really I really loved them and I've been trying to find similar diaries to immerse in there's a couple of people being recommended to me like the andy warhol ones which which i quite like but they don't have that same appeal as the the painting have you read any that you particularly go for and the nice thing i think about collections of sort of letters diaries more than memoirs because obviously they've been edited and collected and arranged Mm. in some kind of order but it's not the pressure of oh i must finish this you know there's not the same sense of urgency perhaps so uh eb white's letters that he has written over time that have been collected and they're so lovely as well because like any you know working writer he's either desperately anxious about the lack of work or desperately anxious because he has too much work (laughs) he just wants to be on his farm in maine and it'll be you know a sort of it's a long, long account of um, how they rescued some ducks from an ice over a lake. And then, oh, by the way, they're making the film of Charlotte's Web. Yes. <laughs> Richard Burton. I was really excited about his and I got stuck because the first year it's just him playing Monopoly in Wales and nothing much <laughs> happening. And then I think when it gets good and like, obviously he's too busy shagging Elizabeth Taylor to write that down. <laughs> yeah, it's like me with Twitter. <laughs> Whenever I'm doing anything actually interesting... The last thing I want to be doing is tweeting. I never think about tweeting as I'm immersed in an adventure. So, you know, you tend to tweet when you're sitting at your desk bored and you tweet about, you know, what's your favourite cheese? Uh, 
but yeah, I mean, you know, the weird thing about reading the, the Palin Diaries is, is I go, I, I have a place in Italy that I go away to to write uh, quite a lot because I can go there and be by myself. And it was quite weird. I was getting so into the reading the Palin that I was, his, his life was sort of merging with my own. And I was starting to think, did that happen to me? Or no, that was Michael Palin. Uh, you get so involved in it because he, he has this thing where he, it's a form of therapy for him. He, he has to write at the end of every day in his way of sort of making sense of what's happened sorting through everything he has to write at the end of every day what happened even if it's just a couple of lines but yeah no i, I i've been trying to find that there's there's a guy oh and i forgot the name again they've just done the new un, unedited extended version chips chips, chips cannon chips, chips cannon yes and i'd been interested in those before because when i was writing my my own young james bond stories which are set in the 1930s i was you know trying to absorb as much as i could about that world and a lot of the things i was reading there would be a quote from Chips Cannon's, sounds like Chips Cannon, <laughs> Cannon's, Chips Cannon's journals and diaries as a way of, you know, explaining what was going on. And he was quite involved with that whole set of uh, the, the sort of English aristocracy who were, who were, who were quite drawn towards fascism as a way, because they saw that the alternative was communism, which would mean the end of their world and their, their privileges. So they were, they were quite thinking what England needed was a, was a, a nice dictator to keep everything how it was. Um, and so he knew a lot of those people and was involved in that, in that kind of world. And the last of my young James Bond books is it, the sort of underlying plot is about that. Um, the aristocracy trying to, trying to get the fascists in. <laughs> well, I think it's so important to remember, isn't it? That it's not about, you know, one uniquely evil person coming to terrorise the world. It's about mm. laziness and ease and not being informed and everyone's sort of anxiety about just not having enough and needing to shore themselves up. I love a huge um, devotee, I guess, of Nancy Mitford. And I love reading about the Mitford sisters and, so, and also being so... Because I, I love anything about a good party. And <laughs> I think, you know for Diana I'm sure it was very very empty and hollow and difficult for her but you know when she was married to Brian Guinness that looked like so much fun why would you go for the Nazis and the fascists Diana don't do it they loved these parties in their big posh houses and weekends in the country and you know there was a genuine and then and it was a and it was a genuine fear that communism could be the thing you know the young intellectuals tended to say you know communism is the future and the the older Aristocracy said fascism is the only way to, to preserve this. Um, and, you know, the establishment kind of thought, you know, the last thing we really need is, 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 an, is an extreme, someone in charge who is an extreme charismatic personality, whether they're from the left or the right, because we could then be pulled in that direction. And we, know, we now know that, you know, Stalin was no better than Hitler. Um, and so, you know, a very, very dull, and I cannot remember, he was so dull, I can't remember his name, but they made sure that the prime, main prime minister in the 1930s, late 30s, before um, Chamberlain, was this incredibly dull man who was very good at compromise and he could work with all the different sides. And it was only, you know, we were sort of saved from probably either fascism or communism by the Second World War. Because suddenly it was like, we've all got to put, pull together. This is our enemy now. And... Churchill was allowed in because they knew actually that if Churchill had got in in the 30s, he may have then decided, hang about, why don't I just become a dictator? We've gone way off the track here <laughs> talking about books. 
back to books. Many Churchill biographies are available. I've got a whole shelf of Churchill biographies because one of the things I was working on before lockdown was a possible series about the young, the young Churchill. I've done Young Bond. This was going to be Young Churchill. Um, but uh, it was decided in the end that probably now is not the time to do a series about Ch another series about Churchill. Oh, Sorry, you were going to sure say something. In time. I suppose that's what reading does, though, isn't it? Is that it creates that space and that perspective we can all have where we can imagine, you know, the world is bigger than we ever can conceive of. And we can live in a world where... I'm not saying for a second that let's all empathise with the wealthy fascists of the 1930s who want to protect their land. But also... You've already said you would quite like to live in that world. <laughs> oh, I've, um, I'm going to get cancelled, aren't I? Um... <laughs> There's that new TV series, The Pursuit of Love. Is that a Mitford book? Yes, it is. I saw a trailer for that last night. I didn't realise it was happening, but that is very much... Beautiful young people partying and drinking champagne and I'm sure some things go terribly wrong, but they do look like they're having a laugh. It is also fantastically funny, The Pursuit of Love. Yes. Nancy Mitford is great. She's a real economist, I think, as well. And that is a book I reread because it brings me lots of comfort and joy. But also when you see the rhythm of her jokes and the way she sets things out and the, the way that people are allowed to be absurd and also that she's making... And again, it's sort of... She does really skewer people's levels of sort of self-obsession and their kind of... The way the wealthy, privileged people were neurotic then in a very similar way to which they are today. I had a question about worst holiday ever and Dan's sort of his anxiety about this holiday and his social anxiety and his sort of mental state and that does seem really something that so many say young people um you know younger people people in their preteens are really struggling with at the moment and I was wondering whether Stan has any um, literary ancestors, I guess, if there are any nervous, anxious characters whose stories you have found comforting or surprisingly uplifting. I prefer a good James Bond adventure with a, with a hero who's got no doubts, who can kick and punch and shoot people, or Bernard Cornwell with someone with a great big sword <laughs> chopping people in half. <laughs> Um, you know, he's based on how I was when I was a kid. I was a very shy boy, self-conscious. Uh, I still am quite shy. You, you don't ever get rid of it. So, so I, you know, I was, I was drawing on my own experiences. And, and I guess really one of the reasons of wanting to write about Stan and the way that I, I have done is to show that actually a lot of people feel that way. And in the end, it's not so bad. You can cope with it. You can deal with it. You can work out that actually people aren't that so interested in you that they're always looking at you and talking about you and commenting on you. So, you know, and, and it is predominantly meant to be a nice, feel-good comedy. I do think that the more you read, yes. the more you see worries and concerns being solved and fixed. Yes. The great thing you get from a book that you cannot get from any other medium. And I say this because I, I do lots of talks with kids and talking to kids and you get you know teachers and, and and parents are saying well you know my my boy just wants to play computer games all day great I love playing computer games and you say well great let them play computer games but let them read as well because in a book you can actually get inside someone and understand what they're thinking and feeling 
And sometimes that might be the same as what you're thinking and feeling. You think, oh my God, so I'm, I'm like other people. Or it might be different. You think, okay, there are different ways of thinking about things. And that is the one thing you really can get from, from books in which, you know, immersing yourself in a book and in another world and in another personality is, is, a, is a great thing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to Charlie soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, I Love Dick by Chris Kraus. This is unlike anything I've ever read before. It's a memoir, it's a manifesto, it's darkly funny and heartbreaking. It's about obsession and identity, feminism, creativity and vulnerability, and it surprised and moved me at every turn. I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about it, and at a time when our minds are supposed to be immovably made up, that feels very refreshing. I Love Dick by Chris Kraus is published by Profile Books and out now. Now, back to Charlie. We were hoping to, in the before times, have this conversation in a bookshop. And I was wondering, when you're in a bookshop, how is your interest peaked? What was the, when was the last time you were in a bookshop and bought something that you weren't planning or expecting to buy? And what led you to it? Well, I love going to bookshops. It's about my most favourite <laughs> peacetime activity. I was going to say, um, <laughs> you know, whenever I visit a town, I'm you know, I'm not interested in the other shops, the clothes shops or the tech shops, but bookshop. I can spend hours in a bookshop, and I'll usually have something which I maybe I'd I'd read about or seen something about. Thought, well, I'll check that out. And on the way, I do get enticed by the colourful stands of books uh and yeah i just i just think that they are such marvelous places and they're full of so many possibilities and i usually come out with a huge stack of books i have stacks of books everywhere around the house and sometimes you make a terrible error um but often you don't and yes i i, I do quite often i will buy something just because it's on a stand of where I, the book i was looking for and it's kind of like other books like this 
and you go for it. So yeah, I'm a sucker for books. I love books as, 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 as physical objects. I like having them around. I don't enjoy reading on a, on a Kindle or, or a screen. I mean, I have to do it quite a lot for pra practical reasons, but it's a bit like a microwave meal mm. in that, you know, you've eaten a meal, but you haven't really. Somehow you, it, the meal doesn't, has never properly existed. Didn't taste like a normal meal. It's the thing with books, you know, you read on a Kindle, the font's always the same, whatever, and you're reading in percentages, which even though it's more accurate, you can't get your head around. And you sort of feel when you finished, yeah, I read that, but did I really read it? That is an odd phenomenon, isn't it? When you, mm. how on earth do you lose yourself in a book where you've got this 47% of the way through? Like your it's, it shouldn't feel like a task to complete. I think it does make it feel <laughs> much more like homework. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, you know, I've got books around the place, which I read when I was a teenager and I can still, you know, remember holding them and turning the pages and occasionally there'll be a, I used to, <laughs> when I went to bed, I used to, it's really very bad for your teeth. I would take an orange to eat whilst I read my book and quite a lot of my books have got orange stains on the pages. <laughs> uh, and you've still got that. And there's, you know, there's books you have a, a a relationship with it's interesting though but some of them you know we're talking about rereading before sometimes you go to reread a book you read when you were young and the, and it's a completely different book you think this is not the book i remember and you realize in your mind you've changed things and added things and and, and sometimes the books are are more interesting than you thought and sometimes you think why did i like this book when i was young it's not very good are there any books that you're looking forward to that are coming later or anything that when you do pay a visit, you've got your eye on? Well, I've, I, I, I know I shouldn't do it, but I, I do buy lots on Amazon. Um, in fact, I got a notification today. I must have pre-ordered this book. and It says it's coming soon. Uh, it'll be delivered to you. And I can't remember anything about <laughs> it or why I ordered it. So I'm going to be quite excited when that turns up. Can you tell but us also, what it is, the surprise book? Yeah, it, it, I think it was a guy on Twitter who had responded to something. Now that I'm thinking about it, I need to open my mail. It's not the small vice that I ordered that turned up today. That's a great title for a novel, The Small Vice. The Small Vice. Charlie Hickson's Small Vice. <laughs> feels like 21st century is. life, listening yeah. to someone. Check well, there's a There's a podcast, isn't there, where... Um, the guest goes through their first, like, is it 10 or 20 things they ever ordered on Amazon? And it's a sort of snapshot of your life all those years ago. And they talk about these things they ordered and why they ordered them and if they remember anything about them. Oh, wow. Have, as you, I say, have you been on? I haven't been on it. No, I'm waiting for the call. Although I did, when I, when I was reading about it, I looked back to see, because you can do on Amazon, it's quite easy to go and find your your first orders. And mine wasn't very exciting. So I think I don't think I would be the greatest guest in the world on that. Where's this bloody book gone? I'll have a look in a bit. Well, it'll be um, even more surprising when and it does well, come. It, well, uh, it's something to do with how we form our personalities. And, and, and I think it's sort of new research into the human brain and that whole thing of we think we're one person, but actually we're not. And we are a sort of some of these weird sort of deep-seated 
things, implants in our brains that we've got very little control over. Sounds as though there's a real breadth in the research you do and this, you know, the science and psychology, but also thinking about Chip's canon and the value of not just reading history books, knowing what happened and, you know, what the received opinion is of something that happened in 1930 or 1940, but also going back and really digging into what people were thinking and feeling at the time before the historians have got there to revise it. Yeah, well, I mean, I do, I, I am I am fascinated by history. There's a fantastic festival, the Chalk Valley History Festival, um, which is run by... Um, James Holland and uh, Tom Holland, the brothers, historians. And it's, a, it's an amazing festival. It's like Glastonbury for historians. Uh, it's down in, in um, Dorset, in this amazing valley. There's tents and beer and people driving tanks around. And um, all the his, every historian you've ever heard of is doing a talk on something. Uh, and I go down every year, I host a... Um, they do a big sort of comedy history quiz that I host. And I also do a talk of some sort and I of a vaguely historical nature. And the one I'm doing this year is on how uh, the Kings and Queens of England, how, how each one has died and to, to, to get a tally of deaths. Um, and it's quite interesting because we have this idea that, well, as you say, that history is this thing. And we particularly, because the Queen has been on the throne for so long, we have this idea that there's some kind of sort of great dignity in our own family and this great pageant slowly unfolding, but it's been, but it's been, but it's actually a, a catalog of murder, violence, killing your father, killing your brothers, um, poisoning, dying in horrible ways, uh, having to import a new Royal family from overseas, all that kind of stuff. So you dig back and 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 as you say that history is what is history we we'll never know what really happened even yesterday so it's good, you know, so many different experiences involved um and it's quite interesting because i i was been thinking of trying to do a history podcast but i'm too lazy it's, it's interesting the way and i've noticed it through my kids the way that they're taught history at school um it's changed in my day it was very much it was the kings and queens of england and this glorious pageant great men great battles um but they would they my kids are taught much more about what is history how do you understand history how do you when well, you've got two documents saying something happened how do you know which one is the right one and that i think is a really important skill for for, for people to learn because these days if you want to know a historical fact you just look it up on the internet but how do you know that mm. the thing you're looking up is the right thing so really what kids should be taught, the most important lesson for kids in school today is how to work the internet, how to understand what is true and how to get to the heart of things. And, you know, and, uh, and also what really did happen in the past. And it's such a big deal at the moment with all the sort of culture wars and people arguing about statues and flags and, and all that crap. And I know I, I'll often get involved in a discussion on twitter where I'll, I'll i'll throw some history at someone and say you really think that well this is this is my opinion on what happened because you know it'd be your opinion in the end but yes uh, understanding that and, and i think you know what i think it might even have been this book that i'm trying to track down might even have been involved in that discussion ah. as about why you know why we do have certain political opinions and why because you've got this political opinion it means you have to believe this this and this 
rather than that, that and that, um, which aren't always generally necessarily anything to do with politics. So, yeah, uh, I'm going to look for that book. It's out there somewhere. But I can't even remember what your question was or even if I've properly answered it. But, well, uh, yeah, I do. I think it is important. You, you read as widely as you can. And I read a lot of contemporary science and a lot of history. And the great thing, uh, the contemporary science thing, and it ties in with the whole thing of, of personality and what I was talking before about, uh, about Beckett and understanding mm -hmm different ways that people think I, I love crime books I don't like police books I don't like detective books I like crime books that are about criminals I like to understand what's going on in the mind of a psychopath and there have been some great books recently did you did you come across other minds the book about octopuses oh no tell me about that I'd love to hear about that that was it's a brilliant book it's a big but it was a big science bestseller it's a it's sort of about what it means to be human and how evolution works um and it's sort of ta it takes an octopus as being about the most opposite creature to a human being as you could find on the planet you know if we were going to have visitation from an alien this is the kind of thing it might be because they they have evolved way way back as an evolution branch they're in a really different branch of evolution they've gone a completely separate way they've got like eight different brains in their bodies and and some of them are in their legs and some is in their head and he's trying to understand how they think and it's about the, the evolution of consciousness of, of 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 why we think and how that was a was an evolutionary advantage it really isn't necessarily and so that you know it is a great way of understanding you know if you can write a book if you can understand what makes makes us tick i think that's really important um and on that line, the so one I'm reading at the moment, which is also about making, thinking about different ways of life and consciousness works, is the is the Merlin Sheldrake, which entangled life, which I picked up on my last visit to a bookshop, an actual hardback, no less. It's a beautiful cover. Very it? handsome hardback. It's lovely, and that is about fungus. <laughs> But again, fungus is this, it, it works in a completely different way to, to how we, what we think of as, as life even. And does it have consciousness and how important it is to the, to the whole way of the planet works and how important it is to us because we are full of bacteria and microbes and, and fungal matter. And that makes us, we couldn't survive without it. And it links into our brain and, and talking before what we were talking about therapy and anxiety and that, that there's a lot of research now that, that a lot of that stems from our gut bacteria, mm. which affects our moods. It affects what we think about. Uh, and I really got into researching that when I was writing my, my zombie series, the enemy series, which is where a disease, uh, I predicted COVID, <laughs> a disease hits the planet that, that only affects older people. Younger people are fine. The older people are either killed quite quickly or if they manage to survive they're so badly infected that their brains are kind of rotted away they're reduced to this animal state and they are hunting down the only source of fresh food that is still available to them which is children so it's about parents trying to eat their kids and kids trying to kill their parents to stop them from eating them um, and as I was writing it I wanted to come up with a way that this disease might work and I came up with the idea that it is a, it is a parasitic fungus that, that affects people's behavior and 
more that I read about it now, the more that that does happen to us. And in extreme forms, it happens with with um, a lot of insects get like this, the, the carpenter ant gets this uh, fungus inside it, which impels it to walk, to climb, to a set distance above the, the forest floor, much higher than it would normally climb. And then to clamp its jaws onto the veiny part of a leaf and to stay fixed there while the fungus slowly eats away its body until it emerges out of the ant's head, this spore, which then sprinkles its, its, um, its babies, <laughs> its other spores, down onto the forest floor. And, and the, the, you know, the ant is compelled to do this by the, the fungus. They don't know exactly how it works. But, you know, that, that's, what, that's going on inside us all the time. And, you know, instead of therapy... People need to go and see a gut bacteria specialist. <laughs> sort them out much better. It could be so crapsules. much worse. You could be a carpenter ant. Yes. Well, we are. In a way, we all are carpenter ants. We are all compelled to do things by these forces outside of ourselves. We have this illusion of um, self-control. And I think that that is what this book is about, that Amazon is trying to send me. If only I could find out. And this illusion of self-control partly being that we know what we're ordering on the internet, <laughs> what's going to turn up at our doorstep. Yes, well, exactly. That this thing has, uh, and as I say, I've completely forgotten about it. So, um, Charlie, I, 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 I've got to get a punchline to this uh, this long, dreary anecdote <laughs> about this book I've ordered. Maybe I haven't really ordered it. Maybe <laughs> the whole thing is a fantasy. A fungal fantasy. There's a... There's another another book called Gut by Julia Enders, which is about your guts, which there's a fantastic anecdote in that about the, it's a type of uh, sea cucumber that when it is, um, when it is born or comes out, hatches the sea cucumber, it's a very primitive uh, creature. And it's got basically a tube, which is a stomach, and it's got a head with a brain at one end. The brain senses the world around it and it allows the sea cucumber to move and swim to find the sea at the optimum temperature and then a rock of exactly the right type for it to live on. It attaches itself to that rock and it lives there for the rest of its life, sucking in stuff through the tube of its stomach. And once it's established there, the first thing it does, it eats its own brain because it no longer has a need for this brain. The brain has done its work in finding it the place, the perfect place to live. It doesn't need it anymore, and it's a lot of energy to keep a brain running. So it dissolves it into its body, and it's basically a living stomach, which is what we are. But the smartest thing it can do is eat its own brain. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> I think there's a few people that um, <laughs> I could apply to. Entangled Life is a really, really good interesting read and again it, it it does open your your mind to because i was you know science is constantly coming up with new new discoveries and, and new understandings of, of the world and everything around us and you know if you don't like it you can gift it to someone <laughs> you can blame me <laughs> charlie higson said i should read it it's a bloody book about octopuses i don't want to read that for <laughs> there's no pictures Oh, did the picture of an octopus? No, there are pictures. Oh, oh, well, then sold. And the pictures in this, in Merlin Sheldrake's book, there's a lot of very beautiful um, 
me see if I can find one. Uh, line drawing, For the listeners. Which, done, <laughs> which he's done himself, like that one, um, using ink he's made from mushrooms. There's a fantastic, actually, if you don't want to read the book, check out that he, he's got a YouTube video, Merlin Sheldrake, where he, um, he infects a copy of his book with um, fungus spores of an oyster mushroom. And the oysters slowly grow out of the book and eat the book. So even if you don't read it, watch the video. <laughs> <laughs> Books good for reading, good for growing mushrooms on. Yes, they do really well, actually. Oh, and then he cooks them and eats them. So we're back to the sea cucumber. Yes, he is, he is devouring his, his brain <laughs> in the form of his book. Yes, totally. That is wonderful. One, I read quite a lot of books about writing and 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 you know my interest in in the way the human brain works and sort of psychosis and all that there a lot of that is to do with with how do you create a living breathing character in a book and um and i was reminded of it because i also read a lot i get a lot of proof copies of things sent to me um this is a new book by will store which i'm looking forward to read but one of his his, his last book that he wrote is called the science of storytelling which is a fantastic way of a uh, new way of thinking about characters and creating characters. And I think anybody interested in writing, but also in the science of the brain and personality. And again, it's along the lines of this other mystery book, which I will, which I will track down and maybe I could, oops. Can I just quickly deal of, with someone at the course. door? Hang on. Tell me that Wine delivery. <laughs> I was really hoping it was the mystery Amazon. But yeah, I would uh, recommend the Will Store book to, 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 to anyone, whether they're a writer or not. It's using sort of modern ideas of how we create our own personalities and things as a way of saying, well, this is how, you know, evolution does it. You could use the same techniques for your characters. So do you think that if you're, you know, as a writer and a storyteller and, you know, you've obviously been writing in all sort of different ways and genres for a while, but... I love that one can always learn and develop and sort of meet a new perspective. That the joy of writing is you never, the joy and pain of it is you never think, oh, I, I'm done. I know it all. Off I go. No, uh, t totally. I mean, you know, I, I, it, for me, it's particularly with, with, with screenwriting, with script writing. Um, essentially, it's the same process as writing a novel. You create story and place and atmosphere and characters, but it's, it's, it's minimalist. You've got to boil everything down and reduce it down to its absolute fundamental parts. And so you've got to be able, you know, in a book, you can spend 20 or 30 pages developing a character. But in a script, it's got to be bang. It's got to be there on the, st the page. You've got to think, OK, I'm interested in this person or I know this person or oh, this person feels real. And that that that's that's really hard not to just have a load of characters on the page and you executives reading the script thinking well, who's this person again i can't remember so so particularly with screenwriting i, I i'm constantly learning from that and I, and I you know i will never you'll never know everything it's impossible and you you know you know it as a viewer when you're watching something of characters that that, that really grip you and come alive and others that are just there because they're carrying a bit of plot or something um so yeah i i, I read quite a lot of um stuff about script writing and storytelling 
and and that one by Will Storr was a real eye opener. Another thing I would like to recommend to to you and your listeners. Do you call them that, or is there a, is there an official term for a, a podcast listener? Are they podcastees or something? No, I I call them listeners. We should, it'd be nice to have a your booked <laughs> listener nickname, but a bookie. I don't know. <laughs> bookie. <laughs> But there is it's a new magazine and, you know, it's a it's a it's a literary magazine and as such should be applauded. It's not available in any online form. It's called Friends on the Shelf. There are three issues so far. I have to confess, I do. I do have a piece in one of them that I've written. It's it's um, it's a magazine of autobiography. It's people just writing short pieces about their lives, something that happened to them. Uh, most of the writers in it are non-professionals. They're just ordinary people who have a, have a story to tell about themselves. But what, but what I love about it, as I say, is, is it's not online and it is very beautifully put together. The paper is lovely and it's it's really nicely designed. There are even comic strips and illustrations in it. That looks um, like a beautiful thing. Sorry, rudely, I've just Googled it so I don't forget. And rather than looking at you showing me yes. Friends of the Shelf, well, I'm looking you know, down, but I know that... It's, as you say, it's not online. Well, get yourself a copy. It's, it's really great because there's a huge variety in it as well. Um, and actually, I prefer the ones that are written by the non-professional authors because they're not trying to do a piece of writing. Mm. They're just saying, this happened to me. I think anything that, that preserves printed matter in the page as an actual object that you can hold and love is, is to be applauded. It's true. And, you know, what else are we going to grow our mushrooms on? Exactly. <laughs> Huge thanks to Charlie. Worst Holiday Ever is published by Puffin and Out Now. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at Why Booked. Huge thanks to everyone who's left a five-star review. It's the best way to help us to bring new listeners to the podcast. If you have a friend who loves books as much as you do, why not send them your favourite episode? You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Charlie at acast.com booked and check out his selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. But now I leave you with this from E.M. Forster. Books have to be read. Worse luck, it takes so long a time. It is the only way of discovering what they contain. A few savage tribes eat them, but reading is the only method of assimilation revealed to the West. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 